Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. All right. Well, hey, good morning, Crosspoint Church, and uh, good morning to those of you who are just joining us at Crosspoint for the first time. So glad that you're with us. And let me just say to everybody uh, who's out there, I miss seeing you guys. Um, the church, as we know, is not just a purveyor of entertainment or a deliverer of content, but the church, as Jesus intended, is a body. It's a people. Uh, the church is meant to be incarnate, enfleshed. And of course, digital is good, but analog is better. Um, there's nothing more old school than meeting people face to face. So uh, I think most of us would agree that we're, we're longing for this to be over, but we understand the situation we're in and uh, we're certainly willing to live through it as God provides. Um, but we do look forward to being with each other. Hey, we're, uh, we're, we're starting a new teaching series. And this teaching series is called Check Engine. And through this series, we're going to be doing a deep dive through the prophet Amos. Uh, and Amos, of course, is a minor prophet. You find him in the Old Testament. Um, so, of course, if you have a Bible this morning, I'm going to get you to turn there. And I hope you can follow along with us uh, from your very own sofa or bed or lawn chair, wherever you are uh, this morning. Uh, you know, the question you might be wondering is, why are we studying Amos? I mean, uh, it's not every day that we dive into the prophets. Uh, I, I think most of you would probably um, not be able to count on one hand the number of times you've heard a teaching series from the prophets. Uh, and why are we studying the prophets, particularly during a worldwide pandemic? And I think that's a very good question. Um, and I'll be honest, uh, we didn't have this series planned months in advance. I didn't figure out a year ago, man, I can't wait to get into Amos. Uh, there is a reason why we're getting into Amos. So you might be asking the question, Rob, why are we studying Amos together in community? Well, I think it's better to clarify from the start why we're not studying the book of Amos, okay? Uh, first of all, let me say this. We are, we're, we're not trying to discover some new esoteric interpretation of prophecy that peers, pieces together current events and helps us to predict future events, kind of like a, a crystal ball or something like that. We don't roll that way. That's not why we're doing this. Uh, second of all, we're not trying to manipulate people's emotions through fear-mongering or predictions of impending doom, right, to trying to get you to do something again. That's, that's not really our style here at Crosspoint. And third, we are not going to be pointing to our current pandemic and say, you see, this is God's judgment on the world or God's judgment on our nation or God's judgment on the church, okay? To be honest, I think this kind of explanation is overly simplistic, thoroughly myopic, and misses the complexities and nuances of God's character and his nature and his dealings with humanity. Now, that's a lot to say. I'll be talking about that a lot in the future, but just not right now. Uh, so if you're hoping for any of the aforementioned, any of what I just talked about, and that's why you tuned in this morning, I just want to apologize to you from the outset. 
uh, you are going to be thoroughly disappointed during this teaching series because that's not what we're, why we're walking through the prophet Amos. Instead, instead, we are going to carefully and reflectively study the prophecy of Amos in his life and in his times. And, and we are going to be exploring a number of themes that you find in the prophet Amos. Themes like uh, listening, responsibility, social justice, idolatry, pride, and our great and future hope. And I think Amos, as we go through it, is going to surface uh, a lot of the questions and concerns that many of us are having and are facing in these times in which we are now living. Okay, so, we, it, but also I think uh, Amos is going to teach us a lot about the character of God, and it's going to teach us a lot about how God relates to his covenant people. All right, so that's why we're doing the series. And I wanted to say that at the outset. Now, today uh, is uh, going to be more of an introduction to the book of Amos. Um, there's going to be a lot of preamble uh, in today's message, right? So I just encourage you to stay with me, to bear with me as, as, as we go through this. Um, we're just going to be dipping our toes into the waters of Amos. Okay, in other words, we're just going to be looking at the first two verses of the book. So to start us off, if you're going to understand Amos, here's the thing. Uh, you need to know his backstory. You need to understand his life and his times. See, Amos was a prophet, and, and he lived during an era of history that was known as the divided kingdom. And, and I want us today, I want us to zoom in to this era of Bible history. Uh, but before we do that, we actually have to pull out our wide-angle lens, and we have to zoom out and get a more of a panoramic view of the history of God's people, Israel. Uh, and that's important, because if you're going to understand the divided kingdom, you really have to understand everything that went before that, and you have to go back to the beginning. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but I'm going to spend a little bit of time there. What happened before the divided kingdom, so that you can better understand the divided kingdom. Now, what we're going to discover about Israel throughout this whole story is that Israel had one fatal flaw. And their one fatal flaw was their inability to listen to God. That when God spoke to them and God commanded them, time and time again, they failed to listen. So the beginning of the story where I want to go back to is... Uh, when God chose one nation from among all the other nations, and he chose this nation to be his special people. So he made a covenant. He made a covenant with a man named Abraham. Uh, he, he chose Abraham to be the father of a great nation, and he, he said that your nation is going to be huge, right? It's going to be numerous, like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky, and, and that God would be Abraham's God, and he would, they would be his, his people. And, and so he promised Abraham, he says, you know what? I'm going to bless everyone who blesses you. I'm going to curse everyone who curses you, and one day the entire earth is going to be blessed through your descendants. That was just a huge promise made to Abraham. And of course, Abraham's family would eventually be called the Israelites, and God gave them a large portion of land, and he, and he, um, he said you can live there, and he blessed them and, and, and caused them to flourish there. So they were blessed to be a blessing. And, and the, the intention from the beginning was that Israel would be a light to the nations all around them telling them and expressing to them who God was. Now, time went on, and as you know the story, Israel eventually ended up as slaves in Egypt. They were a defeated nation, uh, and so in that time, they cried out to God, and God heard their cry, and he rescued them from Egypt through very uh, many, many powerful acts. 
uh, many miracles. And so Israel left Egypt. They made their way back towards the promised land that God had given them. And this was, of course, known as the Exodus. Now, after this, uh, not long after this, after the Exodus, God made a, renewed his covenant with the people of Israel. And in this covenant, he gave them the law, the law from his servant Moses. And in the covenant, God promised this. He promised that if they would listen to God, if Israel would listen to God, then God would cause them to prosper and God would bless them. But if they failed to listen to God, in other words, if they broke the covenant with God, then of course God would cause difficult times to come and God would curse them. So these were the deals of the covenant made with God. And, and what's interesting is at this time, when God made this covenant with Moses, he revealed something of his character. And I think this is really important if we're going to understand Amos. And so I'm going to read to you from Exodus chapter 34. And here's what God said. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud, and he stood with him, Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this is the nature of God. This is who God was, and this is who he promised he would be for Israel. So the Lord loved Israel, and he promised them this blessed future through the covenant. Uh, God's presence was now with Israel, okay? God now walked with Israel. As a matter of fact, they set up a tabernacle for God, and God chose to dwell among them. He tabernacled among them. But the question was, would Israel be faithful to the covenant? Would they continue to listen to the Lord? Well, of course, after this, Israel returned to the land, and uh, they reclaimed it under the leadership of Joshua and through God's power. And the 12 tribes of Israel were each given a portion of the land to live in. But time went on. And as time went on, Israel stopped listening to God. Uh, they failed to keep their covenant. So, so what the Lord did was he allowed the surrounding nations to begin to defeat Israel. And when that happened, Israel, of course, would cry out to God, and then God would intervene. And, and what God would do is he would raise up a leader, someone that was called a judge. And this judge would, under God's power and God's authority, would lead Israel back to victory. But this kept happening again and again and again, this whole cycle of defeat and then crying out to God and then not listening to God and the defeat and crying out to God. And it, and it continued and continued through the times of, of the judges. Well, eventually, eventually Israel tired of this. And so they came up with a human solution to their very difficult problem. Their, their human solution was to have a king, just like all the other nations that were out there. So they cried out to God and says, God, would you give us a king? All the other nations have a king. Why don't we have a, a king? And, and the Lord spoke to them and he warned them. He says, listen, if, if I give you a king, this king is likely not going to treat you very well. As a matter of fact, this king might be very, very harsh with you. And besides, you don't need a king because I'm your king. I can be your king for you. But of course, the people would not listen. And so eventually God relented and he gave them their first king. And who was this first king? Well, this first king's name was Saul. And as it turns out, he was ruthless. He was, he was paranoid. And he himself did not listen to the Lord, but he led Israel to do many, many wrong things. So then the Lord raised up another king and this king's name was David. And David, of course, was a man after God's own heart. And, and David, of course, was a good king. He was a great king. But even David at times failed to listen to the Lord. And then after that came David's son, the next king of Israel, and his son's name was Solomon. Now, if you know the story of Solomon, Solomon had 
all sorts of fatal flaws, and Solomon himself failed to listen to the Lord. Now, Solomon, of course, he built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, which meant the Lord was no longer living in a tent. He now had a permanent dwelling place. Jerusalem became the center of worship for God's people, and God's presence dwelled there in the capital, Jerusalem. Well, finally, Solomon passed on, and his throne went to his son, Rehoboam. And this is where we find ourselves in the story, at the beginning of the story, of the divided kingdom. See, when Rehoboam took the throne, there was already some tension that was happening in Israel uh, between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And Rehoboam, he was a, well, he was a bit of an idiot as, as far as leaders go, okay? And he got a lot of bad advice from his frat boy friends, okay? And so when he came into the power, he made all sorts of bad political and economic decisions that basically ticked off all of the northern tribes. And so as a result, the nation split in half. Now, there was another man whose name was Jeroboam, and Jeroboam was once a servant of the man Solomon. So what, what Jeroboam did is he, he was appointed the leader of this rebellion, and Jeroboam became the leader of the tribes in the north, while Rehoboam remained the leader, the king of the tribes in the south. The tribes in the north, those ten tribes, was named Israel, and the tribes in the south uh, was named Judah. So Rehoboam led Judah in the south, Jeroboam led Israel in the north. This is really important. So now the, the kingdom is divided, and, but something significant happened when Jeroboam took over leadership. Uh, because Jeroboam realized that when he took on leadership of the northern kingdom, he still had a little bit of a problem. And this was the problem. The temple and the place of worship was still in Jerusalem. So he had to try and figure out a way to fix this problem. And so I want to I pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 12, because this is really critical if you're going to understand the book of Amos. So it says, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. And if this people go to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. All right, so he's a little bit paranoid here. So the king took counsel, and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites." Okay, so, so Jeroboam, he didn't want his people going back to Judah. He feared if the people went back to Judah, they'd stop following him. They'd start following Rehoboam all over again. So what was his solution? His solution was to create his own religious cult, right? So he set up uh, temples, one in Bethel and the other in Dan. Uh, and essentially, he led his people into idolatry. He led his people into sin. And what's interesting is that this choice would plague Israel for generations. It keeps getting mentioned again and again and again in First and Second Kings. And, as it turns out, it does come up quite a bit in the book of Amos. Well, years went by in the divided kingdom. Uh, there were 13 kings in the northern kingdom, uh, eight, 19 kings in the northern kingdom, 13 kings in the southern kingdom. And, and, and the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms, sometimes they would be at war with each other, uh, but sometimes they would share a friendly alliance against a common foe. But it was during this time of the divided kingdom that more and more prophets began to appear. 
Now, there were prophets in the past. There were prophets all throughout uh, the Old Testament and Scripture. But it seems like at this time, there was a multitude of prophets that started to appear on the scene. And this is the time where we find the book of the prophets in the Old Testament uh, being written. Now, these prophets, ultimately, they were sent by God to his people. And what they were trying to do was to get God's people to listen. And to get God's people to return back to God. To return back to covenant faithfulness. And the prophets, of course, when they came, they also were warned of coming judgment. And a number of them actually pointed towards a great and future hope, a great and future Messiah who would one day come, who would restore Israel and would restore the land. But Israel still continued to fail to listen to the prophets. Every one of the northern kings was evil and failed to lead their people well. Most of the southern kings, it turned out, was the same. And so because they failed to listen to the Lord, in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and they took over and wiped out the northern kingdom. And then not long after that, in 587 BC, the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians. And all of this because Israel failed to listen to the Lord. Which brings us today to the prophet Amos. And the question is, well, where does he fit in all of this in the divided kingdom? Well, this is where I want to invite you to turn with me to Amos chapter 1 and verse 1. Thank you for listening to that very long preamble, but I think it's really important for you to understand where Amos fits in the big God story. So let's read at verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So, so Amos tells us that he was living in the days of Jeroboam and Uzziah. And, and we actually know a little bit about these, both of these uh, kings from the book of Kings. Uh, we, we know that Uzziah was the king of Judah. Uh, when he was the king of Judah, he was a strong king. He was a great military leader. He, he fortified his nation uh, while he was in charge. Uh, and through his powerful rule, he brought about a, uh, brought about a bunch of security and, and prosperity to Judah. But his rule would eventually be cut short in Judah because of leprosy, which he contracted because of his own personal pride. So that's, that's Uzziah in Judah. What about Jeroboam? Well, we know that Jeroboam was the 13th king of Israel. Remember, there were 19 of them. So he was the 13th of 19. Uh, and you've got to be careful that Jeroboam, we don't con confuse with the other Jeroboam that we talked about, okay? So there were two Jeroboams. There's Jeroboam 1 and there's Jeroboam 2. Jeroboam 1 was the guy who, who helped split the kingdom. This is Jeroboam 2. Okay, and they're not, they're not even related. I mean, they're from the same Israel, but they're not even closely related. Okay, they're, they're very different people. Um, so this is the guy who didn't split the kingdom. Now, Jeroboam too, what we discover about him was that he was a corrupt leader. But God still used him to strengthen Israel and to fortify its borders. So Israel was actually flourishing under his leadership. So it was strong culturally. It was strong economically. It was strong politically. The nation was in a really good state under his, his leadership. But what we're going to discover is that not everything was working so well as it seemed. Now, there was a major blot in Jeroboam's record, on Jeroboam's record. And you read about it in 2 Kings chapter 14. Verse 24, here's what it says. And he, Jeroboam, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's Jeroboam the first, which he made Israel to sin. So, so Jeroboam the second was competent, 
But he had a problem with his character, and he continued to lead his people into sin and idolatry. So what's this specifically referring to? It's actually referring to the two false temples that Jeroboam the one had set up. Remember, he set up those temples, one in Bethel and the other one in Dan, which were places of idolatry, places of, of false worship. And so he had this major blot on his record. And it's during this time when Jeroboam is the king in the north that the Lord called the prophet Amos. And he spoke his word to Amos, and he sent Amos to speak to Israel. Now, we, we don't know a lot about Amos. Uh, what we do know is, is all from within the book of Amos. Uh, we know that he was a shepherd, um, but actually he was a specific kind of shepherd. The actual uh, Hebrew word there, if we were to translate it uh, more directly, would be sheep breeder. So, so he wasn't a, uh, a dusty herdsman who sat on the side of a hill. The, the, the word actually means that he raised sheep so that other people could purchase them. So he was like a, a sheep rancher, if we could use that term. Uh, so he likely owned a big uh, operation. But we also learn a little, little bit later on in the book of Amos that he was also a farmer. He was a fig tree farmer. And so, so he had diverse crops. He had diverse sources of income. Now, because of this, there's a very high likelihood, scholars will say, that Amos probably spent a good amount of time in Jerusalem. He would have been gone there to buy stuff, to sell stuff, to trade, uh, which means that he probably had money. He probably had connections. Uh, and as you read through his prophecy, you discover that he's really familiar with international events and local customs. So he's, he's a pretty cosmopolitan kind of a guy, right? He also had polished skills in debating and in writing. And because he worked in the countryside, he was deeply, deeply connected to creation. And this comes out in his writings and in the metaphors that he uses. So one day, the Lord called Amos from the countryside of Tekoa, and he sent him to go to Israel. And so this dusty farmer from the south headed north to Bethel, to the religious center, the religious capital, to bring them a word from the Lord. And it's interesting in the text, you probably notice this, but Amos said that this happened two years before the earthquake. And, and this isn't actually a metaphor. He's, he's actually speaking literally here. You read about this earthquake that took place actually in another prophecy in, in Zechariah. As a matter of fact, archaeologists have gone back uh, to that region and they've discovered that there was an actual earthquake that took place during this time and in that area. So there's archaeological evidence for this earthquake. Why is, why is Amos referencing this earthquake? Well, First of all, this was an unforgettable, terrifying event. And anyone in that day and age who would have gone through an earthquake would have remembered it. But what Amos seems to be saying is that the Lord sent this earthquake to affirm everything that he said through Amos. So he, what he's saying is that, that this earthquake was like a prequel to God's coming judgment. Amos spoke and the earth shook. It was one of the most epic mic drops in human history is what this earthquake represented. So that's verse 1. And verse 1 kind of sets the stage for the prophecy, right? But verse 2 actually gives us an overview of the prophecy that Amos is going to share. It's kind of a summary statement. And so let me just read verse 2 for you. Here's what it says. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. 
Now, you, you have to think about this, okay? Let's remember, uh, for hundreds of years, the Lord was merciful and gracious to Israel. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. And when Israel broke covenant, okay, the Lord sent in trouble to wake Israel up, to get Israel's attention. Israel would cry out to the Lord again. They'd eventually listen. God would show mercy. He'd forgive them. He'd restore them. And then this would happen again and again and again. Repeat cycle, repeat cycle, repeat cycle. And the story of Israel is that Israel continued to fail to listen to God. And now Israel is in such a state that their, their backs are completely turned away from God. Because now everything seems to be going well for them. I mean, the nation is, is prospering. They're safe. They're secure. So why do they even need the Lord? But now the Lord speaks to them from Jerusalem. It's time for Israel to the north to listen. And I love the imagery here. The imagery here is, is that the Lord is, is, is like a roaring lion. You know, I, I, I did some research on lions, and what I find out is that lions have different roars for different occasions, but their fiercest roar is a roar of warning. It's their most powerful roar. It demonstrates how powerful they are to all of the other lions who are in the territory. The roar of this lion is so powerful that it can actually be heard from five miles away. I mean, that's a roar. Now, I've been to Savannah Wilderness in Africa before. I spent some time at the Mazimara Game Reserve there. And in the middle of the night, I have heard a lion roar. It, it is like a traffic accident in your soul. The whole wilderness just stops and takes a deep breath when the lion roars. And notice in the text where this lion roars from. It says that the lion roars from Zion. The lion roars from Jerusalem. So he's not roaring from the north. He's roaring from the city of David. He's roaring from where the true temple of our God is. So what, what this means is that the lion is challenging the bulls of Bethel and Dan, the false idols and the fake religion of Israel. Because here's the thing, lions are apex and uh, keystone predators. They are the top of the food chain. And lions eat bulls for breakfast. That's what he's saying. And, and this isn't a happy message. I mean, this isn't, a, this isn't a party gram, right? This is a message of warning. This is a message of potential woe and destruction. Because here's the thing. When the lion roars, he, Amos says, the pastures mourn and Mount Carmel withers. Well, why do the pastures mourn? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. This is actually a play on words here. Uh, the word mourn actually means dried up. The word can be used in either way. So the reason why the pastures are mourning is because the pastures, the grass, is all dried up. Well, why are, the, why are the pastures all dried up? Well, it's because Mount Carmel withers. Well, what's Mount Carmel? Mount Carmel was this large hill that existed in the area. Um, it produced constant streams of water that would flow down and would water the plains that surrounded it. And so if Mount Carmel dries up, then the plains all around it die. And you've got to remember, we're, we're, we're thinking in the mind of a shepherd here. What was the worst possible thing that could happen for a shepherd? The drying up of Mount Carmel and the withering of the plains. Because that means no water. And if there's no water, that means no grass. And if that means there's no water or no grass, that means every one of his sheep, one by one, would eventually wither and die. And when the sheep die, the people die. So this was the, the absolute worst form of devastation and desolation, desolation that Amos could imagine. 
And so the prophecy of Amos ultimately was a, was a warning roar for Israel. It's time for them to the return to the Lord. And, and, and if they did not, disaster and desolation were on the horizon. And it wasn't too late. It wasn't too late for Israel to turn back to the Lord because it, God wants to renew his covenant with his people. He wants them to walk in his ways. He was still for Israel. He still loved Israel. He was still their God. And he's giving them just this one last gracious warning. The lion is roaring. And will they listen? You know, it's interesting, as, as, as you walk through Amos, you discover this appeal again and again. This appeal for them to listen, to hear. Uh, let me just, we're going to throw up a slide real quick. I mean, Amos 3.1, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. 3.13, hear and testify against the house. 4.1, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, which is actually one of my famous verses in there. We'll get to that later. Uh, 5.1, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation. 7.16, hear the word of the Lord. 8.4, hear this, you who trample on the needy. Again, and again, the lion roars, but will they listen? You know, Amos himself was confronted by this roar. I mean, when the Lord called him to be a prophet, he needed to decide, am I going to listen to the Lord or not? Am I going to resist or am I going to obey? And here's what he wrote. You read it in chapter 3. He says, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So the lion roared in Amos' soul, and, and he had to decide, how can I, how can I, what am I going to do? And he said, how can I help but, but listen to the lion? Now, what about us? We are not Israel. We do not live in Palestine. We are not under the old covenant. In fact, we are under a new covenant, which was purchased through the blood of Jesus, um, and we enter into this new covenant through faith. So we are, we are not the recipients of this letter to Amos. So does this letter still have something to teach us? Well, that's the question. Well, here's the thing. Is, is the Lord has not changed. And the Lord still calls us today to listen and to obey. And Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is still roaring. Are we listening? Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but, but sometimes I, I find that I have a lot in common with Israel. I, I see the, the repeat patterns, the repeat spin cycle that they go through. I, I realize that sometimes I struggle to listen. And so for the remainder of our time together, I just want to get really, really practical. I want to share with you a couple of roadblocks that I've experienced in my own life when it comes to hearing the Lord and listening to him. And here's the first roadblock that I have. It's called distraction. You know, sometimes I, I find it's difficult to hear God's voice when there's so much noise going around me. I, I, don't, I feel like my soul is constantly being bombarded by a clamor of voices, advertising, music, movies, YouTube, social media, books, conversations. Of course, we live in the information age, but we all know that more information is not necessarily better for us. Many of you are likely familiar with the story of Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10. Mary and Martha were two sisters. They had Jesus over for dinner. And it says that as dinner was being prepared, Mary sat at the Lord's feet. And what did she do? She listened. 
But Martha was distracted by all the things that she needed to do. So Mary listened, Martha was distracted, and at some point Martha gets a little ticked off and she says to Jesus, so she tells Jesus, the master, what to do, and she says this to him. She says, Lord, tell her to help me. And I I love how Jesus responds. We pick it up in Luke chapter 10. Verse 41, it says, But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I marvel at how anxious and troubled I can be about many things. And I have to ask myself the question, how is the noise and the distraction around me keeping me from hearing Jesus, the Lion of Judah? How about you? Have you ever wondered about that? This, this is one of the problems that we have in living in a world with so many options. I mean, we, we assume that having more options is going to be better for us. We assume it's going to lead to a better life. We assume that it's going to lead uh, to better decisions. I, I wonder if you've ever heard about the famous jam jar experiment before. Uh, this was a study that was conducted by two psychologists in the year 2000. And, and they wanted to learn about the relationship between options and decisions. So one day, they decided they were going to set up a jam jar display in a local market. And this display had 24 varieties of jam. So they let people sample the jams. They allowed people to go in to purchase the jams. They tracked how many jars of jam were sold. And in the end, they even followed up to see how customers were satisfied with the jams that they had purchased. Well, on another day, in the very same market, they did the same thing. But this time, they set up a display with only six jars of jam. Okay, they again track total purchases, they track customer satisfaction. And here's the question. Which display do you think sold more jars of jam? The display with 24 options or display with six options? And the answer to that question is it was the display with six options. More people came to the display when there were 24 options available to them, but more people bought jars of jam when there were six options. In fact, they bought 10 times as many jars of jam from the six-item uh, display than the 24-item display. And here's what they also found, is when they followed up with customer satisfaction, the people who had uh, tried the six, uh, purchased the six-jar uh, display had far greater customer satisfaction than those who had purchased from the 24-jar display. And what this study shows is this, is that choice can be very appealing to many of us, but it can also be paralyzing. This is something that's known by as paralysis by analysis. More options does actually not make you better at making decisions. And more options does not make you happier or more satisfied. We, we hear in the text that Martha was distracted by many things. She had, she had all these things going on, all these different options. It made her more anxious. It actually made her more demanding of Jesus, more troubled. But Mary chose to listen. And Jesus called this the good portion for her. How do the myriad of options keep us from hearing God? I mean, what would it look like for us to to actually minimize the noise and the distractions that are all around us and find space in our lives so that we can actually hear from the Lord? How might you build a dam against the flood of information that's constantly pressing against your soul? The lion is roaring, friends. The question is, are we listening? But here's a second roadblock I've discovered. It's the roadblock of selective hearing. This roadblock is, is actually more intentional than it is accidental. It's, it's where I actually choose to change the station or turn down the volume on God's voice when I don't like what I'm actually listening to. 
See, here's the thing. Sometimes God speaks to us. Sometimes God asks us to do something that we know is going to be hard, right? And there are lots of ways that God speaks. I mean, God speaks uh, through the prompting of his Holy Spirit. Maybe we read something in his word, and, and, and God uses that to get our attention. Uh, maybe we hear something from a sermon. Maybe a really trusted friend speaks to us some life-giving truth. And so we hear this, and, and it starts to become clear to us that something needs to be done in our lives or in our world. The lion is roaring. And we know it's time to listen. But sometimes, I mean, we, we don't want to go through the pain of changing. Change is hard. Change is, change is difficult. And, so we're, and sometimes maybe we're just afraid of failing. Or sometimes we're, we don't want to give up control of our lives. So what do we do? Well, i tell you what I sometimes do. I come up with a strategy to shut out God's voice. Now, I've discovered in doing that, it is really hard to stop the lion from roaring. How do you shut down God's voice? Well, there is one way to do it. What you can do is you can actually drown out God's voice with other voices. If you don't have control over the remote control that's in your living room while the TV's blurring, you can always turn up the music in your bedroom so you don't hear that anymore. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Now, this isn't a new tactic. I mean, people do this all the time. People have done it from the beginning of time, and they'll probably do it until the end of time. In fact, the Apostle Paul warned his protege, Timothy, about this very thing. He said that this practice could actually become rampant in the future, where the people of God start tuning out God by just elevating other voices that are around them. I want to I read something to you from the final, one of Paul's final letters to Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, and here's what Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, preach the word, Timothy. Be ready. In season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Well, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, Paul, Paul's writing this, uh, this letter to Timothy from the Mamertine dungeon. Uh, there's a very good chance that right after this, he's going to be executed. He, so he's, he's thinking and he's pondering the future of the church. And, and he has almost this, this prophetic concern about the church and something that's on the horizon. And he says, you know, there's going to be a time where believers in Christ will drown out the Lord's voice by filling their ears with other voices in order to support their own passions or their pursuit of these other passions. You know, it's, it's interesting I, is that I, I find this, this more true today than ever before in my life. There are many people who would say that we are living in today in what is called a post-truth culture. Um, Abdu Murray speaks about it in his book, Saving Truth. I recommend this book to you if you get a chance to read it. It's fantastic. Um, but in there, he talks about how the Oxford Dictionary declared post-truth the word of the year in 2016. Now, the, the, the word existed before that, 1992. But in 2016, it just kind of ballooned. And, and part of this was because of the U.S. elections. Um, there was a whole lot of fake news. There was a whole lot of uh, foreign propaganda that was taking place. Uh, so that's why the, the, the name just kind of became elevated in our society. But it exposes the reality of something that's happening in our culture. In a post-truth culture, preferences and feelings are elevated above facts and truth. Logic and evidence don't have the same influence that they once did. And so what matters most in the culture in which we live are actually our preferences and our opinions, not what is actually true. In a post-truth culture, we acknowledge that truth exists. We say, yeah, there's truth out there, but we don't care about truth if it gets in the way of our preferences. So in, our, in our culture that we live in, truth has actually just become customizable. 
uh, customizable through our social media feeds, uh, the things we choose to watch or, or listen to through internet algorithms, through echo chambers, through confirmation biases. So the, the bottom line is this. If, if the evidence fits our personal preferences and opinions, then we'll accept it. But if the evidence doesn't fit, then we decide that the evidence is either inadmissible or it's offensive. This is the reality of living in a post-truth culture. So what this means then is that we live in a society of selective listeners. And I'll, and I'll admit, like, as a believer in Christ, as a follower of Jesus, this, this deeply troubles me. And it's not because I'm afraid of the cultural changes that are happening all around me. Okay, the culture is, is, is oftentimes going to run against the grain of the kingdom of God. I'm afraid because I live in this culture. And there is always this subtle, persistent temptation to conform to the culture I live in. My fear is that I'll become comfortable with a post-truth posture. That I'll find it really easy to just throw truth to the wind. To jettison sound teaching. That, that I'll become a, a selective listener who just is okay with turning the volume down on God and turning the volume up on all the voices that speak contrary to God so that it, assumes, uh, it suits my own passions and it suits my own preferences. And I, and I think as followers of Jesus in the day in which we live, we have to be very discerning and we have to be very self-aware and aware of this tendency that we have. And we should have a strong desire to do just the opposite, to turn down the volume of all the voices that we're hearing and turn up the voice of our Lord. Friends, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, he's still roaring. He's still roaring. And the question is, are we willing to listen to him? Can you pray with me? Let's pray. My Father, we thank you for the living word that you spoke to the prophet Amos, to your people, so very long ago. And we thank you that uh, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly uh, prepared for every good work. We thank you for the word from Amos this morning. God, would we have soft hearts? God, would we have open ears? God, would we be like Amos and would we just respond in obedience when you roar. And we give you permission, Lord, to roar. God, give us the courage to follow you in glad obedience. Give us the power to make the changes that need to be made. And we say to you, our God, continue roaring and we'll keep listening. We pray these things now in the powerful name of Jesus, our resurrected King. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, thanks, thanks for listening. Uh, we're going to move towards a time of prayer, which has been our practice uh, at, with Crosspoint, uh, actually long before COVID-19, and uh, we're continuing this practice uh, even today. So wherever you are, if you're by yourself or you're with your group of people, wherever you are, we want to encourage you in joining us in prayer. Hey, if you are by yourself, I wouldn't even encourage you to maybe call up a friend and say, hey, can we pray together during these uh, next few minutes uh, to do that together in community? But we're going to spend some time praying.
praying together. We're going to put some prayer requests up on the screen. It's going to give you about four minutes to spend some time there. If you are there with some other people, maybe appoint somebody to pray for your, uh, on behalf of your group that's there, uh, your family, or your friends, or, or your extended family. Uh, but we're going to spend some time praying together in community. And after that, we're going to move to a time of Q&A. And of course, I'm going to um, dismiss us uh, from uh, our formal gathering. And we're going to go into our extended gathering after that. But before we do all of that, why don't we pray together and we invite you to pray along with us. Let's pray.
Well, hey, thanks for uh, praying with us. And again, if, if you have other prayer needs that you'd love to share with us, we would love to pray with you and pray for you. Uh, you can uh, submit your prayer requests, of course, online through our website. Uh, as well, we'd love to hear about your visiting with us today and joining with us in worship. So please fill in a connecting card, a digital connecting card, and we'd love to follow up with you as well and help you get connected in community and learn and discover how to grow as a disciple of Jesus. Well, we're going to move into a time of Q&A, and this is the second time we're doing it. Last week worked pretty good, uh, so I hope that you have some questions related to today's topic. Maybe you have some questions about hearing God. Maybe you have some questions about prophecy or about the prophets. I'll do my best on those ones. Uh, and uh, you can fire away and send those in. The number is uh, on the screen, 780-217-4009. So we're going to take this moment, and we're going to dismiss our formal gathering together, and then... Uh, we're going to enter into uh, a time of extended gathering. You can stick around and join with us and fire away some of those questions. But let me just remind you of who you are. You are the people of God. You are called by God into his redemptive mission in the world. So be who you are. Love you guys and appreciate you. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.